Hi, I'm Tom Merritt, author of CNET's The Real Deal. Welcome to Buzz Out Loud Special Interview Edition, a interview of indeterminate length with Corey Doctorow. Corey, thanks for uh, joining us. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Corey is, among many other things, a contributor to Boing Boing, as well as an author of many great books. What's the book that you're working on right now? Well, the book I'm working on is called Theme Punks, uh, and it's a novel that um, is actually being serialized just slightly ahead of my writing it on Salon uh, every Monday. So uh, I'm, I'm currently about 100,000 words into it of 150,000 words, and Salon's just finished publishing uh, about uh, 40,000 words of it. How much farther do you have to go? Well, I'm about halfway through. Okay. And what's the, uh, the latest complete work that you have out there? There's a novel that came out uh, um, earlier this year called Someone Comes to Town, Someone Leaves Town. Uh, it's a science fiction and fantasy novel, basically. It's a, a novel about um, uh, uh, people who are engaged in building community wireless networks, but it's a, it's a fantasy environment that the protagonist's father is a mountain, his mother is a washing machine, his brothers are variously a trio of nesting Russian dolls, a precognitive and, and so on. So it's kind of a, a contemporary fantasy. Fantastic. Uh, and you put these out uh, um, uh, on the web for free under a Creative Commons license, right? That's right. Yeah, everything I've published has been put out online under free Creative Commons licenses that allow people to, at the very minimum, uh, commercially, non-commercially redistribute the works. Uh, the latest book I actually put out under a license that um, also allows people who live in the developing world, that is to say any country that's not on the World Bank's list of, of high-income nations, to uh, make as much money as they want off the book any way that they can think of without my permission, without compensating me, provided that they don't export it to a high-income nation. Now, you put these out for free on the Internet, but then you also publish them in print, right? Yeah, I've got a traditional New York publisher. It's the largest publisher of science fiction in the world. They're called Tor Books. They're a division of uh, Holt Brink, uh, you know, that's Macmillan in the U.K. and St. Martin's in the U.S. They're great big press. Um, and uh, the same day that Tor puts the books on the shelf, uh, they come out on my website as free downloads. So that's one of the things that we've talked a lot about on this show in, in trying to understand Creative Commons and understand not only Creative Commons and, and its distribution, uh, the, things, the distribution methods that it allows, uh, but also talking about P2P and giving away content versus charging for content. You make money off of your books, but you also give them away online. How does that work? I actually make money off my books because I give them away online, if you ask me. Uh, it's hard to do a controlled experiment because I don't have another first novel that I didn't release under a CC license that I can go back in time and compare sales with. But as far as I can tell, sales in my books have been um, much stronger as a consequence of them being readily distributed. As Tim O'Reilly says, he's the publisher of O'Reilly & Associates, the, the great tech book publisher, uh, the biggest threat to most authors isn't piracy, it's obscurity. You know, um, uh, my books compete with all the things that are one click away from someone who's interested in reading. And that's uh, everything from, like, uh, you know, downloading dirty movies to playing a video game to reading something else. Uh, the reason that my book doesn't sell 99 times out of 100 times, the, the reason that someone isn't buying my book, isn't because they, someone gave them a pirated copy. It's because they don't even know it exists. And so for me, in the short term, giving away books, uh, means that some of the people who don't know the book exists, but who would buy it if they found out it existed, buy it. Of course, a few people who get it for free decide not to buy it. And, and you know, for the thousands of emails I've gotten from people who said, oh, I, I wouldn't have ever bought this book, but I, I read part of it online for free after a friend of mine sent it to me. Um, and, and, you know, that, that recommendation from a trusted source, that's the most important piece of all. 
Um, there, there have been a couple of people who wrote to me and said, ha-ha, you dumb hippie, you gave me the book for free, now I don't have to buy it. But, you know, I don't really sweat those guys. Now, I do think that um, in the longer term, uh, uh, electronic text will become uh, valuable enough that a lot of people will choose to just have electronic text and, and not buy print. I don't think that it will, uh, uh, you know, overtake print or make print obsolete or whatever. Uh, I just read this great book by Bruce Sterling where he says, the future composts the past. So, you know, it's not like technologies go away, but, you know, they, they, they get folded in and they become a little less visible, a little less important. And when that happens, I'm going to have to figure out how to make a living as an artist, um, even though the thing that, that um, I've been doing, I, I don't think I'll be able to charge money for it. Cause I, I'm, I think charging money for bits is dumb. I just I don't think I'm going to be able to do it in any meaningful quantities. I think that, that there's just not a big enough audience who are willing to pay money for bits. You know, maybe donation where will work, maybe something else will work. Whatever it is that happens, though, I think the way that I'll figure out what, what it is is by being in the middle of a whole bunch of people's practice of electronic text, right? There are a lot of writers and, and other kinds of artists who've decided that, that the way that they're going to find out about the future is by folding their arms and glaring at the world and demanding that it reconfigure itself into a less hostile configuration. I just don't think that there's like any future at all in calling your customers crooks and in describing the way that they want to consume information as, as a form of, you know, institutionalized theft. Uh, you know, even if you believe it, I just don't understand why as an entrepreneur you'd say it out loud. It just seems like commercial suicide. So for me, I figure, well, you know, let, this bu- let these books be distributed far and wide electronically at a time when it actually makes me money and use the market intelligence I gleaned from it to figure out how I go on making money um, and never get into a position where I go to war against my customers. You know, I, I heard uh, someone say recently that as many as, as one in 50 of the lawsuits in the federal docket are the music industry suing one of their customers. Right? Like, that's a, you know, that's not a business. That's a denial of service attack on the American legal system. Right. You know, we need a, we need a better answer than that. So, I think with your situation, as far as writing books right now, there isn't a very viable uh, way for people to read the books straight out of electronics. It's hard to print them yourself. There hasn't been a, a real good uh, ebook reader come out that has become widely popular. But when you're talking about music, a lot of people are trying the same method that you are by giving away their music online. And there is you can you can print your own CD. I mean, you can if somebody's giving away an album, you can download it and put it on CD. And yet, the model still seems to work for some people. For instance, the Wilco example. Even when you can print your own CD, people wanted to go and buy the real thing anyway. Some people, for reasons you know, I'm not one of those people. For whatever it's worth, I am. Um, my my personal belongings are scattered in storages that are unbelievably expensive in Toronto, London, and San Francisco. If I never, ever took possession of another CD again, it would be too soon. Uh, my whole life is about, you know, moving objects out of my life and, and converting as many objects into bits as possible. But, you know, I guess there are some people out there who just want to buy CDs. But, you know, I think we need to look at this more historically, right? In the, in the 1930s, um, when, when vaudeville was around and when Marconi invented the radio, the vaudeville artist said, well, who cares if you've come up with some crazy way for us to make money off of, off of radio? You know, radio was considered really disruptive to live performance because, you know, instead of having a guy stand at the door and, mm-hmm. and collect a dollar from everyone who came in, you just had, like, these signals out in the ether and anyone who could build a radio could listen to them. Um, and the vaudeville artist said, you know, we don't care that Marconi has come up with some way for us to make money through this crazy dot-com advertising, you know, scam that he's come up with over there in Radioland. Um, we, we're charismatics, right? We stand on a stage 
and we perform for an audience, and we do this thing that's like as old as the first story told in front of the first campfire, and, and he's got no business telling us how to be creators. Um, we demand that the world rearrange itself into a more hospitable configuration. All those artists who did that just ended up, you know, like flipping burgers and driving taxis. Unless, right? unless they, they changed their minds and, and did yeah. make the jump to radio, and then they became unless famous. They changed their minds, right? Now, 70 years later, you have their spiritual descendants who are saying things like, well, yeah, we understand that recordings are very hard to keep track of and, and that, you know, charging money for an individual recording is becoming increasingly difficult and that a digital edition of a song is, 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 a, is, a, is for many customers a, a perfectly adequate substitute for the physical object. And, and nevertheless, um, we are unwilling to entertain a business model that's based on uh, giving away music and charging money, for example, at live performances. After all, we're not charismatic. We're not trained monkeys. You have no right to demand that we, that we get up on stage and, and caper for you. We're, we're white-collar workers. We commune with our muses indoors, and when, we come up, when we're done, we release our work. You know, I think technology giveth and technology taketh away. I think that you know, the really interesting thing that's, that's happened while no one was looking is an MP3 or electronic text or iPods. It's the era of the conversational artist, artists who can appear to be in conversation with all of their audience at once seem to have a technological assist in this day and age that, that previously didn't really exist. So you look at comic book artists like Warren Ellis or filmmakers like Joss Whedon and, and Kevin Smith or um, you know, writers and so on uh, and musicians, and, and you, you find these people like building communities around themselves and chatting with them and being a part of them. You know, the guy who did uh, Babylon 5 was like spending three hours a day on Usenet communing with his fans who were mounting gigantic letter-writing campaigns to get his show produced, then to get it syndicated, then to keep it from being canceled, and so on. I mean, this kind of, of um, uh, creator-audience uh, um, collaboration is becoming really important right now. And, and while I think that it's perfectly possible to succeed without doing this, I think that doing this makes it easier to succeed. Uh, I just read a great book by Henry Jenkins, the MIT professor who does a lot of cultural studies stuff. I, I just read The Galleys, and there's a bit in it where he talks about how fan fiction writers critique each other's work. Um, fan fiction is, you know, when you, when you write your own story set in the Star Trek universe or whatever. And fan fiction writers, their critique of each other's work usually centers around whether or not a story belongs or doesn't belong in the canon. You know, Captain Kirk would never have done that. You're, you're dumb. You shouldn't have written it that way. Um, and what, what Jenkins found when he started studying these communities is that not only do fans critique each other's work this way, they actually critique the canon itself. They say, oh, well, this movie shouldn't really be considered part of the Star Trek canon because the writers made a mistake about how the characters would act. Right. So we have an era where audiences feel as much ownership over the work as artists do. Well, I think, we, I think we've always had that I, that feeling amongst people. They just never had the access, or at least uh, maybe even temporarily in the 20th century, they, they had the access removed from them by mass media, and mass media is sort of giving it back to them now. Oh, I guess so. I mean, I, 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 what we never had was a mass media with, with a mass audience that could have a mass community, right? It was one thing to be like the guy who told stories to 10 people who had strong opinions about your stories. It's another thing to be the woman who makes the movie that's viewed by 20 million people who has strong views about the movie. You know, and I think we've, we've entered an era where it's possible, like, you know, for the first time, not only just to reach a mass audience, but for that mass audience to reach each other and for them to, to take some com command over your artistic fortunes and your artistic endeavors. And so, you know, for me, 
um, uh, enlisting my audience's support and getting them to recommend my stuff to each other and to kind of you know help me out. I, I, I you know, in, in lots of little and big ways. I've got a, a wiki for each of my books where um, readers post their errata, you know, the, the typos and so on, uh, continuity problems that that they find in the books because these always, these always slip through. And what I found with my first book is my publisher would ring me up and say, like, we're going back to press tomorrow for another printing. What typos have you found? And be like, oh, damn, I don't know. So now I've got a wiki, right? He rings right. me up and he says, we're about to reprint this book. Can you tell me what the, uh, can you tell me what the typos are? And I, can, and I say, no, but my fans sure can. And you There's just a web over there, yeah. You know, and, and they can go through and they can correct them all, which is really cool. And, you know, my first book now, my first novel is Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. It's been distributed more than 600,000 times from my website. Um, and it's in a sixth printing. And so as far as I can tell, that's a success story, you know, compared to the sales of my contemporaries' books, friends of mine's books, who that came out around the same time. It seems like I'm outselling them. It seems like my commercial fortunes are good, and that seems to be the experience of everyone who's tried this. So I'm pretty sanguine about this. And so is my publisher. You know, they've got a lot of skin in this game. They're, they're all about what it is that they're going to be selling to people in 10 or 20 or 30 years when no one really cares much about buying print editions except for a couple of weird old paper perverts, you know. And, um, and you know, they want to figure out what electronic text is for and how people want to use it. And it used to be that electronic text, you'd only distribute it with, uh, you know, what they call DRM, digital rights management, which is this use restriction technology. And the idea of DRM is that, like, everything that's not prohibited is obligatory. And so you give someone this, this file, and there are only, like, nine ways they're allowed to use it, and they have to use it that way. And then you try to find, you, you try to learn something new from how they use it. Well, you can't learn anything new. You've already told them how to use it. You never find out anything new about how people use it when you do it that way. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm um, you know, one thing I've learned is that a, a fairly substantial number of people are perfectly happy to substitute uh, text-to-speech for an audiobook, just load it onto an MP3 player and walk out the door. You know, for them, it's just wallpaper anyway. So many of us listen to, to audiobooks as kind of textual wallpaper while we're driving or walking along. It doesn't really matter how great the reading is. You know, I think that's one of the reasons that podcasts are catching on. You know, who wants to pay 50 bucks for 12 hours of audiobook when you can pay zero bucks? for kind of infinite uh, infinite talk. All right. Well, I think we've run out of time. I wanted to talk a little bit more about Google Print, but uh, I, I guess we'll just have to try to get you back another time. Uh, well, I can do that, that. In, like, in like five sentences. All right. Go for it. So, so it used to be that your search results never included books. And so that meant that if you were the kind of person who learned about the world by, through your search results, you never found out about books, which meant that as writers, we were doomed. Google has now come up with a way so that search results include books. Instead of writers suing Google, we should send them a fruit basket. We should send them a fruit basket every day for the rest of time because they've just saved our asses. All right. That's brilliant. Well, thank you, Corey. Thanks for coming on. Uh, and I appreciate having you on. I hope we can have you on again sometime. All right, man. It was my pleasure. Talk to you later. All right. Take care. Bye. As Cory Doctorow, author of, among many other books, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, and you can also find him contributing to Boing Boing. Uh, if you got comments about the interview, give us a call, 1-800-616-CNET, or email us, buzz at cnet.com. See you later.